can say, okay, well, that to me falls under constructive possession. I feel like you're hanging out with someone who's got a gun. You shouldn't be doing that. And I'm going to violate you. You go in front of the judge. Judge says, look, your probation officer says that you're a bad seed and you're hanging out with people that have guns. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm violating you. You're getting six more months. My point is this, is that being on federal probation, is, it, it's dicey. Like, people think, oh, you can do what you want. They can't tell you this. They can't tell you that. They can tell you anything they want to do. Right now, I have an opportunity to go to the Netherlands um, to do a shoot. Now, I can't leave the United States. Now, I went to my probation officer and I talked to my probation officer. I said, look, now she's been letting me leave. I went to Puerto Rico. I've been all over the place. I said, I need to go to the Netherlands. These people are going to pay me to participate in a documentary about con men. And it's like three or four days, but I need to go to the Netherlands. And so she's like, I can't, you know, she can't let me leave the country. She's like, I can't authorize you to leave the country. She didn't have a problem with it. She's like, you're going to have to put in a, a motion to the judge. So I had to write up a motion. I, I went, I gave it to my, my, um, my, my old federal probation office. My, my, my old federal defender, I contacted her. I said, look. I did this motion. I want to see if I can leave the United States. I said, what do you think the chances are? She goes, ah, you're about 50-50. And I said, well, you can contact my probation officer. She doesn't really have a problem with it, but she can't authorize it. And she can't really say, hey, she can't take a position. It's not their probation just doesn't take a position on something like that. So... Um, she, my old federal defender is going to file the motion with the judge, and I'm hoping she'll actually maybe talk to the judge or talk to the judge's clerk or something and try and explain the situation. So I, I had to go. Through, I have to go through that whole thing, and I still only have a 50-50 chance. There's a good chance the judge doesn't even let me go. So you know, and this is the thing. Like I need to do that. To, rate, to, to make money to pay my restitution. And what am I going to do in the Netherlands? I'm not going to go in there to, to do anything. I'm going in there to work. I have to notify the consulate when I get there. I have to be told where I'm, where I'm going to be, where the hotel is, the whole thing. So that's basically what I'm saying. It's like you really are restricted on where you can go. I can't even move freely throughout Florida without permission. Um, I can't move where I necessarily uh, want to move. I have to, I have to notify my probation officer where I'm going to be. She can show up anytime. They can search me anytime they want. So that's really where I'm at. So, I mean, it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult situation. For instance, my girlfriend, I had to get permission to date my girlfriend because my, my girlfriend's a felon. So, both the pro our probation officers had to sign off on us dating. And you can imagine that. You meet some girl, you really like her, but she's got a felony. And so you have to go to your probation officer and beg your probation officer 
and her probation officer to let you two see each other. I mean, you're, you're basically, I'm a child. I'm basically a child, and my probation officer is my parent. And she can tell me to do whatever she wants to tell me, and I have to just take it. I mean, that's just the way it is. And there's, no, there's just not much I can, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, you know, look, it's the situation that I put myself in. It's absolutely my fault, but it, it's stressful. Um, it's, there's just a lot of anxiety involved in it. And, you know, you're constantly worried because I know guys that have been violated for, for next to nothing. Um, so, yeah, that's the situation I'm in. I basically have about four more years of it. And there's nothing I can do to get off paper. And my probation officer would have to suggest it. And there's no way my judge is letting me off paper. He's just not going to do it. So, yeah, subscribe, hit the like button. Share this with a friend. Watch the whole video twice. Watch the commercials. Buy a t-shirt. Buy a book. I have Frank Amadeo's book, which is It's Insanity. I have John Bozia's book, which is Bent. I have my book, which is called Shark in the Housing Pool. I have Pierre Rossini's book, which is um, Devil Exposed. Um... What else do I have? Oh, I got the program, which is about me going through the drug program in prison, just basically trying to manipulate the system to stay at Coleman Low so they didn't ship me off to Miami and I wouldn't be able to see my mom anymore. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that's where I'm at. And uh, the program's funny. And, and so, yeah, stay tuned. And I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you following. And uh, see ya. Whatever on the highway. The camera's at the gas station. The camera's in front of every goddamn person's house in the whole fucking country. I mean, it's just like so... Like, the dude who did that, I don't know what the issue or the tension was or whatever, but I hope it was worth it because, that, like, this is the stupidest dummy mission crime you could ever imagine. I mean, period, in United States, like, there's no big city you can go to where there is not cameras every fucking corner. So it's like, it's retarded now. And they even have, like, I know in Compton... They have like sonar detectors that let you know what, like what area a bullet even mm. came from. I heard about that in Chicago. That shit stuff, is crazy. Where if somebody gets shot, they can like triangulate exactly yeah, where came the noise exactly came from, from so here. they can solo, you know, single it out, which is pretty unbelievable. One other thing I want to say about the Anne Marie thing, though, is there's a lot of people pointing out the hypocrisy about this because obviously the girls on Twitter are like, yeah, sis, shoot him, ha. But then, like, think about how different the reaction was when our boy Tory Lanez allegedly shot Meg Thee Stallion in the foot. You know, they treat him like a fucking war criminal. They won't put him on playlists and stuff. I mean, does seem a little hypocritical here. That is very hypocritical. Yeah. That's fucked up. Yeah. I mean, look, is the, is the guy alive? Oh, uh, yeah, I think he's all right. I mean, he ain't, he ain't got no problem with it. Well, that's the question: Is if he'll snitch? He's not gonna snitch. If your girl shot you in the head, would you snitch?
it depends on is it like my girl girl or is it my girl girl? I mean, either way. Just pop that bitch back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, YouTube, thank you very much for tuning in with us. Like, comment, subscribe, and we'll see y'all real, real soon. Appreciate you. A lot of people mistakenly believe that prostitution is legal throughout the state of Nevada. And that's true, except in the two counties where most people go. Clark County, which is where Las Vegas is located, and Washoe County, which is where Reno is located. NRS section 201.300 outlaws pandering, commonly known as pimping in the state of Nevada. And what pandering is, is encouraging or forcing someone to engage in the exchange of sex for something of value. It's important to note that to convict someone of pandering, the state doesn't have to prove that sex actually occurred or that money was exchanged, merely facilitating a situation where someone is arranging to exchange money in exchange for sex would be sufficient to constitute the commission of pandering if proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Having been a prosecutor for five years and a criminal defense attorney for more than 10 years, all the time I see cases where people find themselves suffering immigration consequences for a criminal conviction that they were not expecting. Situations where they go to court and their attorney says, hey, I got you a great deal, you're going to get time served, you're going to get out today, no jail time, just you sign these plea documents, it's, it's a terrific deal, and, and, and they go through with it, they plead guilty, they plead no contest, and then a year later, sometimes five years later, sometimes ten years later, they find themselves in removal proceedings about to be deported from the United States. Or they find that they leave the United States and they're not able to re-enter, or they're not able to naturalize and become a citizen of the U.S. So, to the extent that you are not a citizen of the United States and you've been charged with a crime, you want to get an attorney who understands not only criminal law, but immigration law as well, and can resolve the case in a way that not only gets you a good result in court, but that is not going to trigger immigration consequences. Stole the car because I left my key in the car. Mm. I had a runner and I just unlocked the key because you can't open the door if I lock the key, the door with the app, right. even if the key's inside. Gotcha. So I'll put the key somewhere inside the car and lock it. And when the runner needs to get the car, I'll unlock it. Gotcha. That's how I was operating when I was, I was ever in a rush. Mm. That happened that day, but I forgot to lock it. So that same day, somebody was checking people's cars on the street that day. Mm. Opened up a 2016 Red Corvette. Oh, the door's open? Oh, and the keys inside? Dying. <laughs> Caught me slipping. Right. But it was God's will because at the end of the story, oh, man, this, is a long, this is a pretty long story, but it's crazy. Okay, well, you don't got, you don't got to go through that. that yeah, the motions, but, but yeah. The, the whole point of that Corvette being stolen is, one... Um, a major point was after the car was stolen, I filed a police report.
And when I filed a police report, that I found out that the car wasn't really stolen. They say, well, if you know where the car is, it's not stolen. I'm like, oh, really? That's not how it works? Okay, cool. Well, can you guys help me get the car by sending somebody to make sure it's there? I don't want to have to deal with any problems if the people who stole the car are still hanging around. Mm-hmm. Cool. So she, they sent, uh, they dispatched the officer to check on the car. She was talking to me crazy. Come get your car. Hung up on me. Right? Your car is here. Go get your car. Talking to me crazy. Mm. Right? Stress level. My stress level is pretty, I'm pretty high tolerance of stress. But as the motions were going on, I'm realizing that, hey, this is this is this is really stressful. Yeah. But luckily, the car was there. It just had a little rim rash, little scratches on the on the rim. So I called my insurance and let them know, hey guys, my um, I was with who was I with? My initial um, insurance. Um, who? No, Safe Auto. Mm-hmm. I was with Safe Auto. At, at that point, I called Safe Auto and I told them, "Yeah, what can we do about the situation?" They said, "Well, your deductible is five hundred and your damage is less than five hundred. So, mm-hmm. do you really want to put a claim on a car where you're still going to be paying more?" I was like, oh, "Okay, cool. But what can you guys do for me?" Well, you have free tows on your plan. Okay, cool. Because the car, when I opened the car, the key wasn't inside. Mm. And the anti-theft locked the car, so I can't even do anything. I can't do the remote start. Right, right. So now the car's stuck. I got to get it towed to the dealership to get new keys. So I told them, yeah, at least give me a tow to tow my car over there. So they said, we'll do it. It'll be there in an hour. Two hours pass. No tow truck. I was like, dang, I got things to do. Mm. So I went back to my office temporarily, right? Ten minutes, literally ten minutes later, the car is now moving. I checked to see it go back to the car. Now it's now moving. It's going super fast, 85 south towards Camp Creek area. Mm. Mind you, the car was in Midtown. So I'm like, okay. I thought somebody might say, dummy, why would you leave the car? Well, I I had a like a low, low, super low alertness of high, I didn't have a high level alert on the car being stolen again because I thought it was just some little kids who were just checking cars right. in a high profile car, drove it around the city for a couple minutes, couple, maybe an hour, let the gas go all the way in E and just dropped it off somewhere. That's mm. that was what I thought happened. Not come to find out that the people who stole the car were actually probably living in that same apartment in that building. <laughs> and once they probably even saw the cops there, and once they saw us leave, cut the car. Right? So but it's still, even when the car was stolen, I was still wasn't tripping. My, so if my stress level had a scale of one to ten, it probably started off as a two. Police officer was giving me a hard time because she thought I stole the car. My own car. Mm. It's probably like a four at this time. Car got stolen again. Probably at a five. This is when it moved from five to seven. Right? The car's moving. I'm on, on like trying to call the police officers. Right. Call the police officer. Hey, excuse me. My, my car is stolen right now. What can I do? Can you guys help me? She says, Where's the car at? It's driving. I said, all right, I'll dispatch an officer to where you're at. Guess who the officer was? The same lady. The same lady. <laughs> oh, 
Same lady, bro. Same lady, and she was already giving me a hard time. She went off on me. Mm. Why would you let talk to me crazy? I'm supposed to be the victim. <laughs> and she talked to me like, I'm, like, like, like I just did something like heinous right. anyways. I'm not going to tell you how I responded to her because it wasn't gracious. But long story <laughs> short was they, they end up telling me that they can't do nothing about a car that's stolen that's in a different district. Right? That's why they say zone one, zone two, zone three in mm-hmm. Atlanta. They have zones that they, 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 they take care of, like Fulton. They, they only can do things that if so, the car is in Savannah, only the officers in Savannah can help. Right. So I'm seeing where the car is. So I call whatever, whatever area I forgot. What's that, oh, okay. 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 You that got makes me? Sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. That's deep. That's deep. Okay. That's, that's the So can part. I do it? You going to put me on? Most definitely. Okay, okay, you know some people that need some trade lines? Because I got some clear cards. They're going to contact you. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. But why yeah. shouldn't I, though? Because like, somebody, somebody's like, yeah, you shouldn't do that. Because uh, of the person, obviously they don't get a card. You don't give them a card. But no. Is there any reason? Fear. Somebody put fear, fear into somebody you. Just, <laughs> they said, you know they said? <laughs> You can't do it or don't do it because of this, right? And the only thing you could think of, what if somebody gets access to my credit cards, right? I'm a statistic. What if somebody get access to my credit cards? You think about this, right? Is that how many safety alerts do you have for your credit card? I got a few, yeah. Okay, do you have your push notifications on? Yeah, with somebody. See, yeah. listen, I tell people this, is that one, all my credit card alerts and my credit cards go to an email. Specifically for my credit cards. It's the only push notification that's going to pop up is credit card alerts, right. transactions, things that happen. It's the only thing that's going to pop on my screen for my emails. Most people don't think to monitor, but people don't get access to it. Then reverse engineer. Hey, Dave, you give me 650, I'm going to add you to my credit card to help you build your credit. Hey, Dave tried to access my credit card and just gave me 650 for trying to access it because now I blocked him and took him off and now he has no purpose. Mm-hmm. What's Dave? <laughs> Dave, how much money will Dave have to spend to try to go out and capitalize off of somebody else versus understanding that I can get my own credit card and capitalize off myself? I've been in this business over three years. I've never had anybody compromise a credit card. Hmm. All right, y'all. Y'all see what it is, okay? I got you, okay? Pull <laughs> up. I got. Yeah. That's so dope, man. That's dope. so. One, I want to say thank you for um, for educating our community because when I see the boxes, it's not just all black, but yeah. it be a lot of us. You know what I mean? Like so. That that's very very important. Give me a testimonial. Give me two testimonials from your students. From my students, um, I got First one. of how many students you got? Right now, we're pushing a little over 500 in the mentorship um, and about 1,000 in my financial literacy course. Dang, Ooh. that's dope. And, and, oh yeah, so yeah. are we going to talk about the morning meetup? Can we talk Okay, about? we can. We definitely can. So, yeah. yeah, so we got the, uh, I have a morning meetup where I'm literally on 
a call every single morning teaching entrepreneurship. It's really a strong community. We're, we're hovering around 90-something people every single morning from all, all across the country. People don't want to start their business. Um, they need a community of people. Like it's a, it's a whole built-in audience. And we talk literally every morning. We like a family. And uh, Marcus called me. He was like, yo, I want to add. Yo, and this wasn't even. He didn't call me like, yo, Dave. I need an affiliate link. Like, yo, I wanna, I wanna sell your course. He was like, yo, how much would it be for me to just add my students to your morning meetup? And um, I just thought, I thought I was big. I told my wife, like, yo, this, this is a real stand-up guy. Like, I just wanna add value to my community. Yeah. They don't gotta pay no extra money. He said, I, he said, I'm paying for my students. Which I thought was really, really dope, man. I appreciate it. So, and the reason being is that is that mindset is everything. I, the, the, to operate boldly, to be out here, and it takes daily reassurance. Mm-hmm. I realize me as one person. I see how much we interact in the Facebook group, how much we interact in our Instagram groups. Um, and it's just that daily interacting. So when I see what you do with Sleepless Nights, I go, it's amazing to have somebody that's willing to wake up every morning and give an hour of time that reassurance to get your day started. Get that day started, keep it on your mind, and it keeps us motivated to go out and execute, right? Go out and kill something. If you want to be successful, I'm going to tell you now, you got to kill something every day. And as brutal as it sounds, you have to do it every day. You don't get days off. I don't care what day it is. I don't care if it's a holiday. I don't care. You have to execute and win that day. And I, I delivered a message and I went live and I talked about that. And they went crazy. And I go, listen, you got to kill something every day. And I go, man. My man, David Shands, kills something every day. Every day he wakes up and kills a call for his people to motivate them to go out and kill something every day. I want to add, I don't want to do that for my community. I want to add somebody who already does it naturally. So that way that gets added to my community is something that's already in you that goes out and kills. You already do it. I don't want to duplicate what somebody else does. No. Let's add and bring it together. Collaboration over competition. Um, camaraderie um, with them. And so those people can help put this in a way to explain it. The defense, the defendant has to be on it and talking about it. And it has to, I keep coming back, it has to be genuine. But most of the time, I really don't need to hear from the defense lawyer. This is, is about the defendant, and it, it's, it's, if you believe what I'm saying about the inhumanity of the sentencing guidelines and the humanity of 3553, the best person to tell that story is the defendant. Um, now, I, I, I've seen defendants that did themselves no favors by how they got up there and maybe didn't treat me respectfully and didn't own up to it um, and didn't have a plan to succeed afterwards. Uh, 
but I've seen plenty that have been good advocates for themselves um, by allowing me to get to know them a little bit. And, and Judge, what influence do, do character reference letters have on your decisions at sentencing? I've read that as one of our early questions. I've had 67 in one case. That's too many. 67 character references are too many. Uh, I don't need the whole community, whether it's a white collar crime or someone who's been selling drugs. Uh, I, I work with a lot of folks who are trying to become judges in the state and federal system. And I encourage them, people who want to become judges, figure out who the, you know, in the state of Missouri, maybe the governor, um, in different states, it may be senators that help pick the judges. Figure out their best friends and make a connection with them. Figure out what that judge cares about. If you're a criminal defendant, don't bury the judge in 50 letters that they can't read, and then they start skimming over them. You know, give them meaningful letters. So if there's somebody in your life that can really talk about your early stage and how you got there, um, I had a sentencing this week where they developed a relationship with a psychologist that really knew them and could talk about that person in a way that said, they've owned this and they know what they did is wrong and they've got a plan to move forward. So, you know, five is probably as many as you can really come up with. If all you're going to say is this guy's a really good guy and he screwed up and please go white on him, I don't need 50 of those. A couple of those are okay, but I'm looking for somebody genuine, somebody that really knows that criminal defendant, somebody that really knows how they've progressed through life and how they've progressed since being arrested, um, they can tell me there's genuine remorse and there's a genuine plan to move ahead. In what ways can expert testimony during a sentencing hearing influence your deliberations about an appropriate sanction? Does that have any, any value to you? Yeah, and it's, it's rare. Um, my, most of my criminal docket is drugs and guns. Um, but in certain cases, I think it is helpful. Um, obviously, we're going to know about that beforehand because the vast majority of cases involve public defenders and CJA folks, and so they normally have to seek leave of court to get those experts approved. But there are mitigation specialists and typically higher sentence, sentencing guideline range cases that can be really meaningful. That, you know, figuring out that they, where they got in trouble and how they got in trouble in grade school and in high school and, and this path that led them down that way. Um, and then what is actually needed to fill in that gap, uh, I think it is helpful. But like I mentioned before, we keep, we keep our cases moving, so I need to know about that beforehand if that's coming at me 
so I can either watch it the night before on my computer or we can make the time in the sentencing hearing to hear from that person. Um, you know, it's, it, there's, there's a little bit of an oxymoron or contradiction. This is the most important day in a defendant's life, and I understand that. Um, I've got to keep cases moving and can't give everybody every day, the whole day. And so finding that balance and me understanding that it's the most important day in that defendant's life. The defense to willful destruction of evidence might be that you lack the intent to get rid of evidence. For example, if, uh, if your partner came home and unbeknownst to you, they had uh, clothing that was used during the commission of a robbery or a firearm that they placed in the garbage and you simply threw the garbage out. But you didn't know that there was something of evidentiary value in the garbage. You would not be guilty of willfully destroying evidence. Additionally, you cannot be successfully prosecuted for willful destruction of evidence if the item which was destroyed had no evidentiary value in court. the profit from any type of racketeering uh you know activities and then in b it says it is unlawful for any person employed by or associated with any enterprise to conduct or participate in directly or indirectly such enterprise through a pattern of racketeering activity so basically once again saying that if you're involved in a criminal organization it's, it's illegal for you to act on the behalf of that organization and go out and get you some money. Then C, finally, it says, It is unlawful for any person to conspire or endeavor to violate any of the provisions of subsection A or B of this code section. So, that's just saying that it's illegal for you to do any provisions that's within A and B. Now, we say all that to say, what in the world was Hood Rich Pablo Juan doing? If it's a RICO charge, that means there's more people involved, and this case is going to be crazy, man. Now, Hood Rich Pablo Juan is extra flossy, man. If you look at his Instagram, you would think that he was on top as a rapper. You would think he was with the big boys. I'm talking about with the chains, the money always shopping and like i said before man we gonna see this a lot man there's gonna be a lot of rappers that are gonna be out here getting hemmed hemmed up man because check it you just had people mad people getting getting caught for ppp frauds trying to do unemployment frauds i mean check out the videos i did a video about uh baby blue from pretty ricky he had a PPP scam. Who could forget Nuke Bizzle, the Memphis rapper who was living it up in L.A.? Man, dude was doing an unemployment scam. Now, a lot of these rappers are getting hemmed up because of the pandemic, man. It's a hard time for everybody, man. We all putting our pennies together, saving money, and trying to 
make sure we can make it to the next day, man. That's just what goes down in a situation like this. I mean, the whole world stops, the whole world stops. But, man, these cats still want to be flossing. They still want to be getting the money. They still want to be posing for the videos. They still want to shoot videos. And one part of me understands because they're entertainers. Then the other part of me is like, man, it ain't worth it. Because if there's one thing that folks are looking for right now, it's folks trying to commit crime. They got all day to look for you, man. They were looking anyway. But now, I mean, there's so many, so less people on the street. So many people hunkered down. You're just sitting out there as a sitting duck, man. If you're doing anything illegal, stop because they're going to be like, man, oh, this fool doesn't think we see this. Like, uh, you're scamming or you get money right now? Yeah, it's going to last about a week, man. Just like with Baby Blue, man, from Pretty Ricky. They said that he had uh, he had just bought the Ferrari like two or three days before that and posted it on Instagram, man. These folks are watching, man. They are watching your Instagram and all that, and people see when things don't add up. And hopefully, I'm going to give Hood Rich Pablo Juan the benefit of the doubt. Hopefully, he didn't do anything crazy. I'm going to assume the, all these charges against him are just alleged. And, man, dude was really a mistaken identity or something of that nature, man. I'm throwing him some bell, man. I'm going I'm, to I'm, I'm throw him some bell here. But other than that, man, I'm going to stay tuned to see exactly how this story plays out. And I'm pretty sure I'll be doing another video on this. Now, with that, this being your boy, Big Man, please hit that like button. Please hit that subscribe button. And make sure you hit that notification bell because I keep dropping some of the hottest content on YouTube. And we out of here. Peace. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. People who get convicted of Nevada crimes may be able to apply to the state pardons board to get their prison sentence or parole period commuted, which is the legal term for reduced. Here are five key facts about commutations of sentence. One, commutations are granted on a case-by-case -case basis and not everyone is eligible. Two, defendants should consult with an attorney about all their possible legal options to try to reduce their sentences. Three, defendants can obtain a commutation application from the Nevada Department of Corrections. There is no fee to apply for a commutation. Four, anyone in the general public can give input to the pardons board about whether a particular defendant's sentence should be reduced. If the board commutes a defendant's sentence, the board will notify any crime victims by mail as long as the victims provide a written request and current mailing address. And five, Commutations are different from pardons. A commutation reduces people's remaining criminal sentence, whereas a pardon forgives people of their past crimes long after they finish serving their sentence. Depending on the case, pardons can also restore people's gun rights. Commutations do not restore gun rights. If you or a loved one is facing criminal charges in Nevada, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE for a free consultation. 
The attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group are here to fight for the best resolution possible in your case. Sometimes on a job application, you may be asked whether you've suffered a conviction. Sometimes you'll be asked, have you ever been arrested? And sometimes it'll say, if so, explain. And sometimes the explanations aren't so good. So not only can we seal criminal convictions, but we can also seal arrest records so that you don't have to check the yes box and you don't have to explain. Um, and so really I think this comes to bear mainly in employment related situations. Sometimes, it's, you know, especially in Las Vegas, there are, there are lots of embarrassing stories behind the yes boxes. And so um, it's really, you know, important that people feel that, that whatever happened in Vegas isn't going to resurrect itself and come back to haunt them later on. I'm attorney Michael Becker of the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you've been arrested in Las Vegas or anywhere in the state of Nevada, call us at 702 Defense. We'd be happy to talk to you about your case. That company for that old debt, you would be better off to pay a credit restoration company instead of paying that, okay? I literally have paid for credit restoration and I'm not talking about credit repair, that's something different. And again, I have a great credit restoration company called Creative Credit Solutions. Again, I'm not being paid any money for this. This is just a company I've used. He's a good friend of mine that owns the company, Justin, and he's amazing and he's helped lots of people, lots of my clients, and he has helped me, okay? So you wanna make sure if you have issues or if you're wanting to pay a little bit of money to settle these debts, instead of selling and giving them that money, you could give it to a company and they can get all of this cleaned up and get you a really good credit score fast. So there you have it. You will never pay collections or charge-offs ever again. You now have the information, you know what to do. If you have any questions with this size, you can always call my office. Our phone number is 888 479-4542. Again, I do not do credit repair, neither does my company. However, if you have questions or you need access to resources, my company, we are here to help you and we will refer you to a company that we have used and that we have trust if you need help with this. Additionally, you should not spend a lot of money on this. So I'm gonna tell you about companies that are very affordable, where that I know that they were effective and affordable. So if you need that help, 888-479-4542. Again, I just wanna make sure you have all of the knowledge, all of the tools, and all the resources that you need to be successful. This is Noel, to your success. Willfully destroying evidence in the state of Nevada is a crime under NRS section 199.220. And willful destruction of evidence could involve uh, destruction of papers, for example, accounting uh, records if you're being investigated for economic fraud. Uh, if you had files on your computer that were uh, relevant to a criminal investigation, deleting those files could be willful destruction of evidence. 
if there was a firearm that was utilized in the commission of a, of a, of a homicide or shooting, uh, if you were to take that firearm and, and dig a hole in the desert and bury it or throw it into a body of water, that would be uh, considered destruction of evidence, which in Nevada is a gross misdemeanor punishable by up to 364 days in the county jail and or a fine of up to $2,000. Category C felonies would include uh, stalking, uh, grand larceny, and a Category C felony carries a term in jail of up to five years. With a Category C felony, you're able to seek a record seal 12 years after the completion of your sentence. Commonly prosecuted crime by the U.S. government, mail fraud, right? You'll often see this in white-collar crimes, very common. What is it? How do they prosecute people, right? Those are the questions that we're going to answer right now. Mail fraud is broadly defined. It's defined by U.S. Code 18 U.S.C. 1341. It means to obtain money or property under false pretenses or to sell or distribute, exchange, supply, or use counterfeits. Now, does mail fraud only apply to mail being mailed out of state, or does it involve the use of any private or government mail carrier, right? The answer is any use of mails falls within under the gambit of the mail fraud statute, like the U.S. Postal Service, a private interstate carrier to commit any crime of dishonesty, theft, all of that will result in a mail fraud charge. Fell on those times, I went when the Boost Mobile, he passed, Boost Mobile store crash, I mean Boost Mobile store launch, I'm going through depression, lose relationship, lose the Boost Mobile store. Following hard times, I went and started working at a warehouse. Wow. Yeah, right? You go from all that to working at a warehouse. That's it's, humbling. I go from... Yo, there's nothing worse. There's, it, it's bad to be down. Mm-hmm. But nothing worse than to go up and then come down. Yo. That's tough. I go from living in a condo in Alpharetta, driving a... G-Class Benz truck, AMG, to a 1996 Mercury Cougar, mm. working at a warehouse, living in my sister's house with five kids. At the time, she had five kids in the three-bedroom, four-bedroom. I, I made it uncomfortable. 
Yeah. I made the living uncomfortable. Yeah. I didn't even have a bedroom set. I had an air bed. The Mercury Cougar, the door didn't open from the inside. I had to open it from the outside. Mm. Listen to me. That's when I said, and I knew it looking back. <laughs> Yo, you finna get the bar. I've never, I was going through depression and didn't know it. You know how I found out? I'm working at a warehouse and I go, <clears throat> why am I here? Once again, I'm poor hustling. I wanted to, they were gonna fire me. I needed to make it to Christmas because we get Christmas bonus. It's like yeah. a $2,000 check, yeah. right? I said, how do I do it? Thinking, I go, and I call. I know the next day they're gonna fire me. So I call psychiatric uh, hospitals to have insurance and say, I'm thinking about hurting somebody. They go, are you thinking about hurting yourself? I go, no, I'm thinking about hurting my manager. So they go, okay, let's come in for a psych evaluation. I go, what happened? I go, yo, listen, I'm just randomly crying, having outbreaks, real emotional, and it's just like, I don't know why it's always him as a person, like when I'm dreaming, it's him that I'm seeing on myself punching and like physically attacking. I don't know what it is. They was like, well, what kind of hours you working? I'm working 60 hours a week, boom, boom, boom. She take me off work that day. They were gonna fire me that night. Mm. But I've talked myself so much into this story to get out of work. They made me go to counseling. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> in counseling, I find my depression. Wow. Of what I was going through, where I was at, mind state, what I didn't deal with. What did you find out about yourself through counseling? Through the traumas that I was living through, I've never dealt with them. I was uncomfortable even talking about my best friend. Like, I made it to where it didn't exist. So... They taught me, and I remember she was like giving me different exercises, and she had to make me comfortable even speaking and acknowledging what happened, things that happened. It's okay. It's part of life. That I had to cope with that, with the fact that that relationship I had is gone. Yeah. So after that, she had to deal with it head on. Boom. Wow. So then I realized, it took me a little while, I went back. And um, when I went back to that job, it kicked in and said, why are you even here? I got the bonus. Mm -hmm. Got the Christmas right, bonus. I came right. back a week before. Right. I got the bonus, right? <laughs> Listen, they were upset, right? Shout out to ABW out there in Kennesaw. Yeah, I got the check, <laughs> right? Um, I went and I said, why am I even here? I went to apply for Wells Fargo. I became a personal banker. Guys, from warehouse, personal banker. Got back in my suit. Got it. <laughs> right, right. So, back to the old Jew. So I got back in my suit. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I got back in the suit. Um, 
And that's when I started learning banking products. I started learning that people couldn't get approved for business loans. They couldn't get approved for loans at all. Like the, the ratio for people who get loans, mm -hmm. I was giving loans to people who I would look and they would have like a $2 million mortgage. What? Yeah, they would have a $2 million mortgage. They can come and get a loan. Oh, you got a, oh, you got 200000 Yeah, nah, you can't get nothing. Hold on, a $2 million mortgage? Yeah, no, listen, I was working in Roswell, Wells Fargo, right? People will come in, they have $2 million mortgages. They will be able to come in and go, looking for a personal loan. They can come and get What distinguishes incest from sexual assault is that for sexual assault, the state would have to prove that the sex was non-consensual. But for incest, even consensual sex is considered a crime in the state of Nevada if it's an incestuous relationship. Ostensibly, the state chooses to regulate it as a morality issue and to prevent inbreeding and increased risk of birth defect. Compact sedan and they just find out when you get there. Right, right. Turo, you get to choose the car, no hidden fees, everything is clear as day. Mm -hmm. So that was the benefit. So with me, I was driving my, this is how it happens. Justin, new ACO, I got a rental car. I'm like, man, I'm, I don't care what car it is. I got a little small Ford, Ford like the small little, I think it was a Forte, I don't know what it's called. A small car. Right. I had a meeting with Justin Owens, new ACO. I went to Target to go drop, we parked in Target. I went to the car, he hopped in his car, what car, it was S550. I hopped in my, my um, little small Ford. He clowned the heck out of me. Because <laughs> like, y'all about the same height too. And he knows how much money I make. Right. <laughs> he knows what I can afford. He was clowning me like, bro, why are you in that car? Right. Like, why does it matter? Right. We just need to get to point A, point B. Nobody cares. Everybody knows I got it. Why does it matter? But he said, he grilled me so much. On my, on my whole ride home, I was like, man, I'm about to get in the car. I'm tired of this. Driving this. I'm tired of having to explain myself. <laughs> That's how I end up getting the testimony. So that's wow. the question. Why would somebody not just um, rent a car from Hertz or Budge or a traditional rental car mm -hmm. company versus Turo? Because you have more options for nicer cars. Gotcha, gotcha. What about credit checks and credit cards? I know you sometimes, there was a point in my life where you're so, you say, okay, I'm going to go get, I'm going to rent a car, but you never know what they're going to ask for. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, it, you know, that, my heart always You don't know if you're going to get it. Gonna get it they need a credit card? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah. with Turo, you don't need to have a credit card. That's another benefit of it. Or the platforms like Turo. Even a personal booking, all depends on how somebody wants to run their business. But usually with a traditional, you have to be a certain age. Mm -hmm. You have to put it on a certain deposit, deposit certain credit. Um, what else do they need? Sometimes you have to have a flight ticket to prove that you're not a true, local. True, like there's true, true. Of course they do it to protect their business, I understand, yeah. but some people don't have those options, so they need other options to be able to get a car, to run out. Gotcha, so so they really, really Toro, they'll let anybody who has a driver's of license. They, of course they go do background checks. Of course there's a, 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 a vetting process. 
of course all that and of course the car's insured but it's not as difficult nice as gotcha. the traditional rental car gotcha gotcha and you can just find what you like like right. something nice gotcha that's the key piece gotcha it's options I got better so, options so income potential walk me through income potential income potential depending on what car you have it always falls around anywhere cash flowing this is net profit cash flowing anywhere from $300 a month to even upwards of what I was making, $3,000 per car. Mm. My Corvette was averaging $1,600. My, my Tesla was averaging $2,600. Um, profit. Profit, 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 profit. This is literally profit. Mm. Um, my my C300, it didn't perform as well. It was probably in the, the $800 range. Mm. So, all, but, but me... I have my receipts, so and I show cash people. Flows, cash flow, though. Cash flow is cash flow. So you then compare your cash flow to the amount of time that it takes to manage the operation. So with me, I did it all by myself. I then hired one of my brothers at church to help me out with the check-ins and check-outs. But it wasn't labor-intensive. I was still able to do my real business, my marketing mm. agency. I was still able to do the things that I really enjoy, going to church, hosting Bible studies, while managing these three cars. Yeah. And I realized that the cars that I had leveraged the marketing deals that I was actually closing. Mm. And I told people, yeah, I own a car rental company, small small fleet, three cars. I got a Corvette, Maserati, C300. They were so amazed at the fact that I was in this business that they weren't even thinking about the marketing no more. They was just signing the deal. Oh, right, tell me right. about the Corvette. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about that story that you told me. Right. How do I get in this? It was so it was amazing leverage. Where do we where do you keep all these cars? All right, all right. This is crazy. That's a good question. So I initially, remember where I was keeping my cars? Target. Yes. Once I went from three and I turned up, I was parking the cars. I was trying to park the cars at Target. The Target um, general manager called me and said, um, this is Matthew. Are you the one who has all these cars on my lot? He said, yeah, you, you got to move them. You're ODing right now. I, I, I did the most. I, I forced <laughs> You're ODing right now. I was getting away with the three cars. But as soon as I tried to bring them all there, then now I was like, all right, I'll move them. Can, can you give me like a week to figure it out? He mm-hmm. said, he was cool. He was super cool. Cool. I'll give you a week. I think it was during, it was, it was, it was during a big weekend where they needed, they definitely need the space. Uh-huh. And now my cars are a big attraction. Everybody was taking pictures. You can see on the cameras. They showed me. Everybody was going around the cars, taking pictures near the cars, oh, all that wow. crazy stuff. So I had to figure it out. I had to move all my cars to my apartment, one of my other apartments in Norcross. It was, I got a picture of it. All my cars lined up in all the parking spaces. I got away with it for two weeks until they called me and said, you got to move these cars. <laughs> right. By God's grace, by God's grace. As I was posting, every time I got a new car, I posted on my Instagram, like, look, I got another car. In terms of the severity of penalty, possession would be the least serious narcotic offense. Then would come possession for sales of narcotics would be more serious. Then actual sales of narcotics. And finally, trafficking of narcotics. And in essence, the penalties go up like steps uh, with each level of narcotics possession. Nevada narcotics laws are actually the harshest in the country. And even 
sale of a small quantity of narcotics can subject an individual to substantial periods of incarceration. As a matter of fact, under the Nevada trafficking law, sale of more than 28 grams of a controlled narcotic can subject an individual to life in prison upon conviction. Uh, although the, the statutes are broken up into uh, possession, uh, possession for sale, sale of narcotics, and trafficking laws, uh, because uh, the amounts in, uh, to be considered trafficking in Nevada are so low, as a matter of fact, four grams or higher can, can constitute trafficking in Nevada. Um, if you're charged for trafficking, you know, you really need to obtain counsel because the penalties are very harsh here. The good news with regard to narcotics laws in the state of Nevada is, although the laws themselves are very harsh, typically prosecuting agencies are fairly reasonable about negotiating resolutions in these cases. For example, um, one case that got a substantial amount of media attention was when Paris Hilton was arrested for possessing cocaine. And um, it was originally a felony charge. There was a lot of immediate, media attention. Other celebrities and, and certainly a lot of people that aren't famous, you know, go to Nevada, specifically Las Vegas, to, to have a good time, to party, uh, and choose to engage in narcotic activity. Um, most often, although the penalties uh, are severe, um, for a simple possession of narcotics, it's very common to be able to negotiate a resolution that involves a plea to a misdemeanor offense so that uh, a fun time in Las Vegas on the weekend doesn't necessarily turn into a lifetime of uh, difficulty uh, and a, a felony record. I'm attorney Michael Becker with the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you or a loved one has been charged with a criminal offense in Las Vegas or throughout the state of Nevada, trust in me and my legal team to get your case dismissed or otherwise negotiate a resolution that causes minimal harm to you in your future. The penalties depend on whether or not you have priors. For a first-time offense, it would be treated the same as a DUI alcohol. Um, minimum two days in jail, up to six months in jail. Uh, for a second time offense, it's a minimum of 10 days in jail. And for a third time offense within seven years, you're looking at a felony with a minimum one year in state prison. Additionally, you would be required to do a DUI class, which you could do online, you'd be required to attend a victim impact program, and you'd be required to pay fines and fees. Here in the state of Nevada, if you've been in an accident while driving with a prohibited substance, including marijuana, and someone's been injured, the penalties go up substantially. And you're looking at up to 20 years in state prison 
if you were in a DUI marijuana related accident where somebody was injured. Come on, come on. 
A popular hip-hop podcaster arrested in connection with the deadly shooting at Irving Plaza last May faced a judge today. All right, as Lisa Everett shows us, federal prosecutors think they've got more than enough evidence to prove that he is the trigger man. There were some stunning claims in a case here at federal court that has disturbed many in New York's hip-hop community. A federal prosecutor says a popular podcast host known for shooting off his mouth was also shooting off a gun inside Irving Plaza last May, but his attorney denies the charges. 31-year-old Daryl Campbell, better known as multimedia personality Taxstone, went before a judge in federal court to be arraigned on two federal gun charges, including gun possession by a convicted felon. His attorney, Kenneth J. Montgomery, told me outside the courthouse, Campbell is not guilty. We deny all those charges. In court papers, federal prosecutors say DNA retrieved from the Caltech 9mm handgun on the grip, the magazine, and the trigger indicate it was Campbell's weapon and that he fired the shots that wounded rapper Troy Ave and two others and killed Troy Ave's bodyguard, Ronald Bangham McFadder, last May. Montgomery says there's more to all of this. Obviously, there's going to be discovery turned over and more facts and perhaps 3,500 materials in the federal system, so I'm going to reserve any comments about facts uh, until the appropriate time. Prosecutors say Troy Ave picked up the gun after being shot and that it's the one we see him allegedly holding in the video released by the NYPD. In court, the pro There are a variety of circumstances in which self-defense may become an issue in a criminal case. Uh, it could be a situation where somebody uses deadly force and they've killed somebody and the defendant is claiming, I use that force to protect myself or to protect somebody else because under the law in the state of Nevada, you have the same right to defend yourself as you do to use self-defense to defend somebody else who's in a position of vulnerability. Additionally, under the law in the state of Nevada, you have the right to use deadly force against a burglar that comes into your home with the intent to commit a felony or cause substantial bodily harm to somebody. We represent a lot of people involved in disturbances, fistfights, often alcohol is a factor, but it's very common in Las Vegas, people are coming to have a good time, and sometimes, you know, things get out of hand uh, and people get into fights when they're out trying to have a good time. Um, it's not uncommon in those situations for the police to come and just arrest everybody and charge everybody with a crime. Uh, however, there's nothing in the law that says that you have to tolerate someone else's abuse. So if somebody else is physically aggressive with you, um, you have the right to defend yourself. So if you've been charged with a battery and that battery stemmed from some type of, of, of quarrel um, where you felt legitimately 
that you had to defend yourself and used physical force in doing so, um, it's important that you hire an attorney that will aggressively defend you and assert your right to self-defense in order to either uh, convince the prosecutor to drop the charges altogether or uh, to win your case uh, with a self-defense argument at trial. Another area where self-defense can come into play is with relate, in relation to battery domestic violence, a quarrel between, for example, a husband and a wife. Um, often it's a neighbor that calls the police. The police come, they may hear arguing back and forth. In Nevada, most often it seems that law enforcement tends to arrest the, the person that got the worst of it. So that if somebody has a mark, the presumption is, well, the other party was the aggressor, the other party should be taken in. But it doesn't always work out that way. It could be that, uh, that the person that has the injury is the one that started the fight. And it's not always the man that, that does the battering. Sometimes, um, you know, a woman might throw something or a woman might swing at, punch her domestic partner. And the, the man might simply be responding or defending himself. In those situations, self-defense certainly may come into play and an aggressive uh, defense attorney will assert that uh, you were only you, you know, you were exercising your right to self, uh, you, to, to defend yourself, which is, which is perfectly lawful. I'm attorney Michael Becker with the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you or a loved one has been charged with a criminal offense in Las Vegas or throughout the state of Nevada, trust in me and my legal team to get your case dismissed or otherwise negotiate a resolution that causes minimal harm to you in your future. Pretty complicated, pretty fast on you. There's rules and there's exceptions to the rules, but you're always driving to the sentencing table, as we talked before, the criminal history category going one through six, and those little numbers in paren, zero or one, criminal history category one, two or three, and so forth, are criminal history points. They're not necessarily uh, the number of convictions. These are points that are uh, accumulated uh, via chapter four under the criminal history rules. And you get these points based on uh, prior sentences, based on uh, the defendant's status. Also, this idea of recency. You just got out of prison fairly recently and you're sort of, the defendant's sort of back at it again. We're saying you're gonna get extra points. The defendant's gonna get extra points under this idea of recency. And you'll see some types of offenses that are never counted. For example, foreign sentences, uh, tribal court sentences, uh, court martials, even juvenile status offenses, for example. Now, under the guidelines, juvenile convictions are countable, potentially, 
but not juvenile status offenses. You know, possession of alcohol by a minor would be an example of a juvenile status offense. And it works like this. You get three points if the sentence is greater than 13 months, two points if it's greater than 60 days or equal to 60 days up to 13 months, and one point for all others. And you'll see this time period. So if you have a, a three-pointer, you got a two-year prison sentence. It's a three-pointer. You have a time period. It has to be within 15 years of the sentence. You'll see a notation, imposition, or release. What that means, you, you look at when that offense occurred and then count back 15 years. And if that prior sentence occurred within that 15 years, you're going to meet the requirements of that time period. If that prior sentence occurs before that 15-year period and the defendant got a prison sentence and was released within that 15-year time period, it's also countable. Okay, these time periods are important to keep in mind. So this is for prior offenses committed at 18 or older. These are adult um, prior sentences. And I'm, as I mentioned earlier, you also count sentences that occurred before uh, age 18. And it's a little bit different. Here you get, you get a three-pointer if uh, only if convicted as an adult and the sentence has to be greater than 13 months. And it's the time period is within 15 years of the sentence and position or release. A two-pointer for greater or equal to 60 days up to 13 months. You have a time period there within five years. And a one-pointer for all others. Now, there's some other important determinations you sort of have to be mindful of as you do the criminal history rules. And we can't point them all out for you. But the key ones, especially for you new folks, the key ones to be looking at is the relationship of prior sentences and uh, relevant conduct. Under 4A1.2A1, it says the term prior sentence means any sentence previously imposed upon adjudication of guilt for conduct not part of the instant offense. If you had a drug case, for example, where you had relevant conduct from a prior sentence being included in, in the current offense conduct, okay, you're going to include that in the offense and not count it as, prior, as a prior sentence. It gets a little complicated, but, you know, on that point, but the basic rule is if it's part of the instant offense, if you pulled that conduct out of a state sentence and put it into the, the, the current offense to do the guideline calculation, you're going to include it um, as, uh, you're not going to include it as a, a prior uh, sentence. The other point is uh, related prior cases. Related cases are treated as one sentence for purpose of the criminal history calculation. On page 293 of the guidelines manual, 4E1.2A2 says prior sentences imposed in unrelated cases are to be counted separately, and prior sentences imposed in related cases 
ARERA treated as one sentence, one sentence for purposes of 4A1.1. If the, if the defendant comes in for a, in a prior sentence and there's two or three cases all sentenced on the same day, for example, they, they could be sort of grouped together, you know, into one sentence and, and have one set of criminal uh, history points for that uh, prior sentence. So you want to be mindful to take a look at related cases. The other point you want to be mindful of are prior revocations of supervision. Sort of like the question, well, how do, how do the guidelines treat a prior sentence where there was also a, a probation sentence where then the probation... A person's home is their castle. And it's a rare occasion that law enforcement is going to violate the sanctity of your home. But if law enforcement does knock at your door, you would ask them, do you have a warrant? If they have a warrant signed by a judge, let them in. Law enforcement may also try to get your consent to search. They may step in when you open the door and say, we're going to search your home. At that point, you absolutely have the right to say, no, I need you to leave. You don't have my permission to search. The only circumstance that the police can come into your home without a warrant would be if there was an exigent circumstance such as a health and safety check if law enforcement had the reasonable belief that someone in your home might be injured, or if they are in hot pursuit of a fleeing felon who just ran into your home. The bottom line is you have the right to be secure in your home and you have the right to say no to the police if they try to search your home without a warrant. We're going to consider those things that occurred in avoiding detection or responsibility for the offense of conviction. And those things may be occurring even after the offense of conviction, but there's some attempt to avoid detection or responsibility. Still, temporally, it's expanded a little bit, but there's still this nexus, this connection with our offense of conviction. Now, under A1, the who is going to be everything the defendant did. We have, uh, you know, a lot more legalistic type language. We say if the defendant committed an act, or if the defendant aided an act, or abetted it, or counseled it, commanded it, induced it, procured it, willfully caused it. But basically, it's like, did the defendant do it? But we're also going, in some instances, look at the acts of others. Now, the acts of others, we require a further analysis to occur. And this, we refer to it as our three-part analysis. First, you have to determine the scope of the defendant's jointly undertaken activity. And then you have to make the determination, well, these acts of others, were they in furtherance of this undertaking my defendant was engaged in? Would a reasonable person have foreseen that engaging in undertaking with other people, that they may have done these kinds of acts in furtherance of this undertaking? The defendant committed the robbery, okay? So now we're asking about this, the specific offense characteristics of Chapter 2 consideration. We know A1 covers Chapter 2 consideration. And the question is, was a firearm possessed? Well, the analysis is, does 
act occurred during the offense of conviction. He possessed the gun during the offense of conviction. It was an act that was committed by the defendant. The defendant did it during the offense of conviction. It's relevant. Yes, when the guideline says give five offense level increase, you have relevant conduct of a firearm being possessed by the defendant. You give the five offense level increase. But say our defendant did rob this bank with others, and our defendant didn't carry the gun. The other guy carried the gun. When the offense level increase says give five levels if a firearm was possessed, is our defendant going to get that or not? It's a three-step analysis. Was our defendant engaged in jointly undertaking activity with this other person? And what was that scope? Well, the undertaking, undertaking that our defendant had was the robbery. Was this act of this other person, this act we're looking at, the carrying of the gun, was that in furtherance of this robbery? Hmm, he did point it at the teller's mace, did, did seem to give money a lot more quickly when he did so. Seems to have been in furtherance of the undertaking. And then finally, would a reasonable person who has undertaken a robbery with someone else have foreseen that someone may have used a weapon during a crime of violence? And you have to answer that as well in the affirmative. If so, then even though it's an act of someone else, it is relevant conduct, and being relevant conduct, the defendant's held accountable for it. This defendant and that defendant, they robbed a bank together. Hmm, what was the scope of the conspiracy? Well, the scope of the conspiracy was to rob the bank. Sometimes the conspiracy and what the defendant has undertaken are mirror images of each other. They are one and the same. But that is not always the case. The scope of the criminal activity jointly undertaken by the defendant is not necessarily the same as the scope of the entire conspiracy. The examples would be, uh, the defendant is, is convicted of a conspiracy count, uh, and the conspiracy count has your defendant and 100 other people engaged in a conspiracy to import drugs on 100 different occasions into the country. Well, your defendant is criminally responsible, criminally liable for this conspiracy, having been convicted of it. But for sentencing purposes, we say, well, what this defendant undertook may not be the same as this entire conspiracy. And you have to look at the facts and say, well, this defendant's undertaking actually was the importation of drugs on three occasions. Out of those hundreds of importations, this defendant was engaged in three of those. You have narrowed down from this entire conspiracy the, the undertaking of this particular defendant. Reasonably foreseeable. Uh, we have that language about reasonably foreseeable. Reasonably foreseeable is the language in our three-step analysis, three-part analysis for holding the defendant accountable for the acts of others. As such, reasonable foreseeability applies only to the conduct of others. It does not apply to the acts of the defendant. For instance, the defendant's convicted, say, of the conspiracy. And the act of the defendant in the conspiracy was the defendant brought in the bag of drugs that contained two kilos of heroin. Well, turns out the defendant says, gosh, I had no idea I was bringing in heroin. I thought it was cocaine. And I didn't realize it was two kilos. It felt like about a kilo and a half to me, you know. And the question is, well, gee, would that have been reasonably foreseeable to the defendant that he was carrying heroin instead of cocaine and that it was two kilos instead of a half kilo? 
You don't even have to go there. Because if the defendant did it, and it occurred during the offense of conviction, the defendant's responsible for that. So reasonable foreseeability isn't something we're looking at in regard to the acts of the defendant. That's when we're looking at the acts of others. And as we look at the acts of others, keep in mind, it's only one part of the three-part analysis of looking at the acts of others. For instance, the defendant, out of these 100 importations with these hundreds of people over this long period of time, undertook three of those importations. First time failure to register in the state of Nevada as a sex offender is a category D felony carrying a prison term of up to four years. Failure to register for a second time or more in the state of Nevada is a category C felony which carries a prison sentence of up to five years. Additionally, you can only request the district court to eliminate your requirement of registration if you have registered for 15 years consecutively. So failing to register would cause that time clock to start anew and delay your ability to seek to have the court end that requirement. Hello, I'm Michael Castile, an attorney with the Las Vegas Defense Group. Other than the crime of murder, in Nevada, sexual assault is the most serious offense you can face in this state. If you are convicted, in addition to facing a lifelong prison term, you're also required to register for life as a sex offender. Even if eventually you are paroled, it may be difficult to land a job with this on your record. In Nevada, the legal definition of sexual assault, otherwise known as rape, is when a person subjects another person to penetration sexually against the will of the victim or under conditions in which a perpetrator knows or should know the victim is mentally or physically incapable of resisting. In short, it's illegal for you to have sex with someone against a person's will or when you know or should have known the person lacked the capacity to say no or to understand what was happening. In some cases, where someone unlawfully touches another person in a sexual manner that falls short of sexual assault, such as groping for example, he or she might be charged with the lesser Nevada crime of open and gross lewdness. In Nevada, even though rape is one of the most serious crimes you can be accused of, it also lends itself to several effective defenses. The following are some of the strategies a defense lawyer may employ in Nevada, sexual assault cases. Number one, false accusations. Judges and prosecutors know that innocent people can be falsely accused of rape, whether it's out of anger, jealousy, revenge, a way to win child custody, or just an honest misunderstanding. If your attorney can raise a reasonable doubt by showing that someone may have falsely accused you, your sexual assault case should be dismissed. Number two, lack of proof. Unless there was a video recording of the incident, sexual assault can be extremely difficult to prove because it often comes down to a case of he says, she says. As long as the state cannot show guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, sexual assault charges should be dropped. And finally, number three, consent. Rape is forcing someone to have sex against their will or when they're too incapacitated to resist. Therefore, if your attorney can show that the victim gave his or her consent to have sex, 
the Nevada sexual assault charges cannot stand. If you or someone you know has been charged with sexual assault, please don't hesitate to contact our law office at 702-DEFENSE to arrange for your free consultation or visit us at 702defense.com for more information. Thank you. To facilitate the marketing to YouTube, to TikTok, and et cetera, right? Cost me 50,000 in expenses, which means that out of my 150,000, spent 50, now that means that I'm netting about 100,000, right? I'm netting 100 grand here. That's my, that's my take home, okay? Now that I'm netting $100,000 here, now let's talk about the tax side. And by the way, this is a simple example. Again, simple. There's a lot of more, there's more variables that go into this. And that's why you wanna talk to a CPA or a tax professional or an attorney, because I'm not gonna go into every variable here. I'm only gonna state the simple, the simpleness of it so you understand how this works, okay? Now, I'm netting 100K. Now that I'm netting 100K, guess who, guess who now wants their money? Right, Uncle Sam. He's like, hey, I need my cut before you keep whatever's left. So now Uncle Sam comes into play, right? Now that Uncle Sam is here, the first thing that you have to pay when you have your LLC and your tax as a sole proprietor, right? Um, first thing you're going to pay is self-employment tax. Now, let's break down self-employment tax. Now, normally, if you just transitioned over from working um, from working at a job and then you moved over into a business, you probably saw that, that F word, that FICA, right? You saw it on your paycheck, right? Every time you got your check from your employer. Now, normally when you were working at a, at a job, Normally, that, that FICA tax is split in half, right? So you pay half of the FICA tax, I believe 7.6%, and then the employer pays the other 7.6%. And from there, now you pay half, the employer pays half. But guess what? Since you're a sole proprietor and you're taking on the entire business, you have to pay the full uh, you got to pay the full self-employment tax, a.k.a. the FICA tax, which is Medicare Social Security. You got to pay 15.3% on your net. Okay, you pay the whole thing now as the entrepreneur, right? So if it's 15.3% that I got to pay on my 100 grand, that means that I got to cut a check for $15,300 right off of my 100K, right? 15300 15, that's a lot of money, okay? It's a lot of money. Now, of course, you know, you still made money. That's great. But now we got to start lowering. We got to start figuring out how to minimize our exposures. But you pay $15,300. Well, $15,300 on a monthly basis is $1,275 a month. And we were looking at it like having to write somebody a check every month. You're writing a check for $1,275 to the government, right? What, what could you be doing if that money was actually in flow? Like you kept that as cash flow to pay for advertising, marketing, and et cetera, right? But I got to write the check out for $15,300. Self-employment tax that I got to pay. Now, after I'm done paying self-employment tax, I'm not done there, right? Government got a lot of ways to be able to get into my pockets here. The next thing is federal and state taxes. 
Now, let's just take me for an example. On my personal, now on my personal tax return, right? On my tax return, let's say that my taxable income is $80,000 that I, that, that, that's taxable income for that year. If my taxable income is 80 grand, let's just say I'm paying in total between federal and state. Oh, by the way, and I live in the city too, Philadelphia. They pay, I gotta pay city tax, local tax. Expensive. Now, on top of federal, state, let's say federal, state, local, I'm not even taking into account other type of taxes that are out there. Let's say it's around about 25% uh, that I got to pay in tax on my taxable income. Well, if I'm paying 25% on my 80 grand of taxable income that I have, I got to push out another check for about $20,000, right? Now, that $20,000 is about $1,666 a month as another check that I got to write to the government on top of my self-employment tax that I got to pay, okay? So when we think about that now, my self-employment tax and my federal, state, local, and other tax that could be out there that I got to pay, now ultimately, overall, for that year, I had to write the government a check for $36,000, roughly, 36 k which comes out to be about $3,000 per month that I'm paying in taxes. I mean, I could think of a lot of ways that I could use the extra $3,000 to continue to grow my business, right? So when I think about that here, this is why when I say you're not saving any money when it comes to taxes on the LLC, you're literally not saving any money. In the next part of this video, I'm going to be talking about how you can save money by electing as an S-Corp on how you can now save money on this piece right here. This is the part where people talk about here's where you can save money. Most juvenile conviction records will seal automatically as a matter of law in the state of Nevada when the individual reaches the age of 21. But on some more serious charges, especially those involving sex crimes, those records may not get sealed until an individual reaches the age of 30, at which time it's incumbent upon the individual to petition the courts for the sealing of the records. So if you have a juvenile conviction here in the state of Nevada, and you're not sure if your record has been sealed, Call our offices, we'll give you a free consultation, we'll go over the facts of your case. We will be able to determine whether your record has been sealed. And if it hasn't been sealed, we can definitely file a petition for you to ask the court to seal your juvenile record. So this will be the only suit available. Um, it'll be fully lined with white and recession-proof blue on the inside. So that's, that's going to be it. That's all right. All right. So y'all see me, you know, I'm doing orange suits. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try to launch it. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not even putting this, this podcast out. Okay? <laughs> I'm going to get my suit live first. All right. Yeah. All right so let, 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 let's walk, walk me back. Walk me okay. back to um, where you grow up, man. Stockton, California. Stockton, California. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your childhood, like your family, mom and dad. Ah, uh, mom, you know. Just mom? Mom. Typical, um, 
street, baby. That's crazy that that's typical. Right? It was typical. But it's not anymore. See? It kinda, no, like when I ask the question, like, uh, like mom and dad, you're like, no, mom. Like, almost like a... Like, like it's natural. Who, yeah, who has a father? You're right. <laughs> Listen, that's so bad. Yo, oh. Who has a dad? But the, but the crazy thing is, if, if you, like, poll a bunch of people just in our environment, it's like, yo, it was just mom. And I don't think maybe, uh, maybe it's not just a, a African-American thing. Maybe it's just a people thing. I mean, marriage just nah, doesn't work it, out 50% of the time, right? I, I take it as a community. I think it's an African-American thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's an African-American thing because in the 80s where a lot of us were born in our generation now is drugs hit. Mm-hmm. So we deal with cocaine. We deal with, you know, then we deal with mass incarceration. So that's where a lot of us don't have fathers. It wasn't that a lot of our fathers weren't present. They dealt with drug abuse. Mm-hmm. Then if they weren't using, they were selling. Wow. So a lot of our family and a lot of the men's got ripped out of our home. So it's so easy for us to say, nah, I was raised by my mother. That's real. That's but real. this generation of our children, it isn't. Yeah. Because now we hear. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think it's like a cool thing to Listen, be a we, father. We yeah. hear. I don't know I don't know one of my friends who's not a father. When you look, I, I witnessed Jeremy Anderson. Yeah. You look at Mr. Two Weeks Out. Yeah. Right? You, right? Yeah. Fathers, we're all in our children's life. We raise our kids. Mm -hmm. So when we look at our generation now, it's cool to be that. It's like you almost going to get castrated. You can't really come around if you really don't take care of your kids. You got kids and you don't. You got to create that culture, bro. Like culture. Almost like entrepreneurship in our circle. You feel me? Like you can't say we're all hanging out and it's just somebody complaining about their job or complaining about. You look at him like, who brought who brought him? Yeah, you know like it's almost uncomfortable, yeah. right? Or it's gonna be uncomfortable for you to say, "Oh, y'all going? I gotta go to work. I'm not gonna be able to make it at that time." Or I gotta imagine this, Yo, Dave. Yeah, I'm not gonna be able to make the podcast. I, I don't got the PTO right now. Mm. It's almost like an uncomfortable thing to where it's like, what are we really supposed to? You don't got a PTO. You gotta ask somebody to come outside. Yeah, you gotta you gotta create that environment where it's uncomfortable, man. I yeah. remember being in that environment. I think I was complaining one time around one one of my um, one of my my mentors. And he said, "What are you t- What are you talking about? Well, you gotta go, bro." Mm-hmm. I'm like, yo, I'm. I mean, I'm just I'm just like letting it out. I'm just complaining about kind of the things that are going on, and I'm thinking my mentor understands. He's like, yo, what are you doing? Yeah. We don't do that here. And it, when you make that cool, that's different. But yeah. back to where we was yeah, at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the childhood. Childhood. Um, you know, I have one of the, I'm one of the kids that, I was the baby. Mm-hmm. The most entitled and the problem child. Mm-hmm. So, you know. I lived. I always lived my life on my terms, good or bad. I, I I accepted it, and I lived my life on my terms. But I know as a child, I experienced a lot of traumas. So like my best friend, at nine years old, he was nine. I was eight. Drowned. 
So mm -hmm. we literally out playing the community center. What am I doing out at an eight-year-old eight -year kid, right? What are we doing out by ourselves mm. at a community center? That wasn't as bad. With a creek, yeah. right, full levee. Yeah, but we end up on the rocks. He slips in, Just drowns. It was three of us. Three of us. He slips in, drowns. Body disappears. Mud. Couldn't get out. Disappears. Wow. Nobody so, jumped in. Well, what's going on? Were you like just in shock? Like this is what's happening right here? I'm standing at the top of the hill, right? Going down. We ain't supposed to be down there. I'm one of the ones that goes, yeah, I'm 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 gonna watch from here. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, right. And so but no. Damn. And that's the that's the thing is that that's hard to witness as a that eight year old. Yo, listen. So God. you know that's something that I still see, uh, even with his burial, even with his funeral. There's nothing more horrible than the sexual abuse of a child, except perhaps for those cases when somebody is falsely accused of it. In this area of the law, more so than in many others, there are many cases of false accusations. Um, there are many cases of innocent people who are being accused of sexual misconduct with a child and arrested and prosecuted and tragically convicted. It is very imperative in a case like this for the defense team, the defense attorney, the defense investigator to investigate everything about the accuser who's making this allegation. We want to know, first of all, has this child made accusations against other people in the past? And have those accusations proven to be false? We want to know, does this child have a reputation for telling stories and making up lies? We want to know, does this child have behavioral problems? Uh, does this child have a motive, uh, a bias and a motive uh, to make up allegations and stories against this particular adult. We want to pull the child's school records. We want to pull the medical records. We want to pull the counseling records. What we find is a portrait of a child who does have a history of lying and who does have a particular motive uh, to fabricate a story against our client. And when that happens, obviously that will cause the uh, prosecution and the police to rethink their case. The police are going to take the child at the child's word uh, and not scrutinize the allegation. Uh, so uh, for this investigation to take place, to uncover favorable evidence that's going to support the person accused, that's really a job of the defense attorney and the defense investigator. Uh, and if they don't do it, nobody will. And, and tragically, uh, the failure to investigate thoroughly these sorts of allegations has led to many people across the country being wrongfully convicted. Or get a loan, a car loan, trade my car in and get a car loan. She said no. So. A few months later, she said no again. So she said no several times. 
Finally, my car basically broke down and I explained to her that there was just no way I couldn't have a vehicle. And so she said, okay, you can get a vehicle, but you can't spend more than, I think it was $350 uh, a month. I ended up having to spend a little bit more than that. And she was okay with that. Um, and I ended up getting a, a, a new Jeep. So, you know, I, I, got, I got lucky because she really is in complete control of me. For instance, I'm not allowed to leave the middle district of Florida without permission. And so if somebody dies in Georgia and I need to go to Georgia to go to a funeral, I have to ask. And she can say no. Now, I've been lucky because I've been traveling around the country. I've been to California a couple times. I've been to Puerto Rico. I've been to Pennsylvania. I've been to Texas. I've been, I've been all over the place. Utah. So I've been all over the place doing podcasts. And I've been lucky she's allowed me to travel. She's only told me one time that I couldn't travel. Um, so... Um, so that was the first year. It was pretty tough, but now she's loosened up a little bit. I'm not having to do the random urine tests every month, and I was getting random urine tests once or twice a month at least. Um, I don't have to see a shrink anymore. Um, that got loosened loosened up. Um, what else is going on? Like, let me give you an example. I got lucky, and I ended up getting. Uh, I ended up getting federal unemployment. I got uh, a chunk of money. Like I got a nice chunk of money. I forget what it was. It was like six grand or seven grand. I forget. But I got a, I got a nice chunk of money. And, um, you know, they wanted 25% of it. They wanted 25% of my unemployment. So she and I went back and forth and I explained, look, I'm going to have to live on this money. There's no chance that I'm probably going to get this money again. There may not be another stimulus package. What are you doing? What am I, what happens if I go under? What, so I, we went back and forth, back and forth. She came back and she was like, look, you got to pay 800 bucks at least. So I gave her $800. So, you know, the, the point is, is that this goes on like this until until um, I'm off of probation. Now, once I'm off probation, I have five years paper. I'm a, at a year and a little, a little bit over a year right now. So once I'm off of paper, um, you still have to pay your judgment and restitution, but it becomes a civil judgment. And basically it's between you and a collection agency that collects for the federal government. So then you you start all over again. Now, if you don't pay, there's not much they can do because they're going to put a judgment against you. So I'll have a judgment on my credit. There's not much I can do. Even if I make the payments, they're going to put a judgment on my credit. So then you just have to determine, do you want to pay or do you not want to pay? I'm not sure how I'm going to pay off $6 million dollars. And the judgment's going to attach to me no matter what I do. So I'm not sure what's going to happen at that time. Um, I'll have to figure it out with the uh, collection agency. So let me give you another example. A lot of guys that are on paper, um, 
you know, it's like you can get off paper typically at about the halfway point. So if you behave yourself, you haven't been any problems, and the probation officer is like, look, this guy's really not a problem. He's not going to, we don't think he's going to get in trouble. He's doing pretty well. We, the, his recidivism rate um, is low. So what they'll do is they'll, they'll, they'll quash your paper. They'll take you off your paper. So you could have a three-year rest, three years probation and get off in a year and a half if you're good. The problem is because I owe $6 million, I'm not going to be able to get, get off paper. If you owe money, then the government doesn't want to let you off paper because they feel like as soon as we let you off paper, you're going to stop paying. And, you know, so they would rather just keep you on paper for the whole five years. Now, what happens a lot of times is guys will violate for some reason. They'll get in trouble with the law. They'll get pulled over. They'll fail some urine tests. Um, maybe they're smoking pot or doing drugs, and they'll fail a couple urine tests. And the probation officer will say, hey, listen, you know what? Your Honor, we're, we're done with this guy. He He's... He's just not manageable. He's not, you know, he's not supervisable. And they'll throw him back in jail. Maybe he does six months. Maybe he does three months. Maybe he does two years. And when he gets out, they'll just take him off paper. Now, sometimes they reinstate the paper. I know guys that have gotten out, of, gotten out, had, let's say, four years paper. They got out. Six months later, they violate two or three times. And they come back, and when they go in front of the judge, they go, Your Honor, can't you just send me back to prison for like six months and then just quash my paper because I'm not going to stop smoking pot. I'm not going to stop to fish myself. So I wouldn't pay anybody to get me funded. So I'm not going to go and say, Hey, let me go to Rashad so he can get me funded and I'm going to give him 10%. Right? A lot of people are okay with it because they're lazy. They don't want it. They don't have that drive. My thing is that I need to know it because I need to be able to make adjustments and and help other people put my other family on. We're not often to come and give you 10%. So I remember running through a sequence and figuring out, I'm like, how do I do it? And I tried to apply for credit cards and they all got denied. I'm like, something wrong. So I'm like, okay do more research because you can't just apply for credit cards. So I go, okay. So over time, I'm, I'm, and I, I'm, and I apologize. My family might feel some kind of way. I torched so many credit reports. <laughs> like, yo, I'm telling you, they had inquiries. Like my wife at one point had like 24 inquiries. I was trying to figure it out. <laughs> right. Like moms, brothers, right. Everybody had it. Like everybody. Um, one of my cousins is the one who, when we figured it out with, he, he got the move. But I started learning that banks have rules. A lot of people are familiar that Chase has a 524 rule. You can't get more than five credit cards with Chase in 24 months, right? And so, okay, okay, get it. So then I started researching, and then you got banks like Bank of America that has a 234 rule. You can get two credit cards every three months, um, three credit cards in a year, four credit cards total. 
Okay, that's their rule, but they don't worry about if you get credit cards from other banks. So I started learning the rules. Barclays has a rule. You can get one credit card every day. Mm. So it excites people. But the, the, the cold part is the exciting part was the fact that Bank of America will let you get two credit cards every three months. But the two credit cards that you can get every three months, you can get the same day. If you get them at the same time, you get them on the same inquiry. You get one inquiry, two credit cards. Mm. See, Barclays ain't that great. Yeah, one credit card every day. I can only get one because I can't come back tomorrow once these inquiries hit. I'm done. Can't come back, right? So this is when I started learning how to stack my credit card applications together. Then you have to understand is that, listen, Every bank, see, a lot of people get their credit together and the dream credit card is American Express. Listen to me. American Express goes last before Discover. The reason being, they're not strict on inquiries. They're strict on new accounts. So if you don't have any new accounts within the last six months, I can get you approved for American Express with 18 inquiries. This is where you want to be at. You want to look and go, Amex, Chase, you put them last, they're not super strict on inquiries. And you have to understand with them is that they're going to come. And the reason they're not strict on inquiries is because they're going to do more of their verification and underwriting on the back end. You got companies like Barclays, um, Alliant, B of A, they do their underwriting on the front. So if anybody, like most of the time, when you get an approval from Barclays, um, it may take you 48 hours. And it take you 48 hours because they're doing the underwriting on the front side. They're going to go through, they may hit you and ask you for um, verification documents, income, prove your income. They may hit you with that. Cool. Chase is going to hit you with a soft pull later. Let your credit card utilization start going out of whack. Like you're using this credit card heavy. They'll hit you with a soft pull. When they do a soft pull, if your credit score it has dropped, you got derogatory marks, your utilization is out of whack, they're going to slice your limits. American Express is going to come and say, well, you put 150000 on your application. They're going to come a year later, ask for an income verification. They're going to ask to, to get your, ta- your tax returns and say, well, you only made 40000 Slice your limits. Discover does the same thing. All of this is what helps. We have to under, this is the information that we have to understand when it comes to credit card stacking. So when you say, how do you get multiple credit cards at one time? You have to look and learn the rules of which credit cards can I apply for and get multiple cards at one time mm-hmm. from one bank on one inquiry. Literally, stack them all together and do it at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, whew, key to that. Fire yeah. emoji. <laughs> yeah, Outstanding. Yeah. So, <laughs> so let's, let's talk about recession proof, right? Because at some mm-hmm. point, it's like, all right, you learning all this stuff, learning this information, and it's changing your life, I'm assuming. It's changing your family's life. Mm-hmm. At what point do you turn that into changing and educating other people. 
Listen, with that part, um, that was never my goal, right? Now the court can see the DNA evidence showing very strong cooperative evidence of the defendant's possession on multiple parts of the firearm, including parts of the firearm that were not necessarily to be touched just in the act of struggling over it or firing it. There is video evidence. It says, in addition to the DNA evidence, there is video evidence placing the defendant at the scene of the shooting, fleeing the shooting. He's on camera there. As to his motive to possess a weapon and to have fired it there, you can read from the statements in the complaint. We've summarized some of them. Suffice to say, the defendant has publicly stated his willingness to use firearms, his membership in a violent gang, and in particular, his animosity towards the person described in the complaint as individual number one, and indeed his willingness to commit a shooting under circumstances that are remarkably similar to the shooting as it actually occurred as described in the complaint. That, we think, alone suffices, plus the work that has been done to trace the firearm back to Florida for the other count to establish overwhelming evidence as charged. As I said, there is additional witness evidence. They would further describe the events of the shooting. So that deals with the evidence and what they had against Taxstone. Now I want to show y'all something that goes to Taxstone's character. Now, this is Taxstone in court taking his plea agreement, and they're asking him about this gun that supposedly came from Florida. Now, remember, one of the elements to this is that he has to admit that he got this gun from outside of New York. So the judge is talking. He asks Taxstone, okay, may I ask where you received it? Taxstone says, I'm not sure. The judge says, so how do you know it was from outside of New York? He says, I know because the federal government said it was from outside of New York State. The judge says, okay, and then he asks for the prosecutor's approval. The prosecutor says, so your honor, the government's understanding is that the firearm was bought to Mr. Campbell originally from Florida, not where it was manufactured, but by a person known to Mr. Campbell. I don't think Mr. Campbell has to admit that he knows the person or anything like that if he doesn't want to implicate others. He says, I do think he has to acknowledge that he knew the firearm came to him from outside of the state. I don't think that's something we can proffer. The judge says, okay. Then he asks Taxstone, do you know that somebody bought the firearm from Florida to you? He says, no, I know that it was bought from another state. The judge says, okay. He says, I received it. The judge asks the prosecutor, is that sufficient? The prosecutor says, yes. I'm just hanging that one out there. That's one of those you either get it or you don't. But that is backbone and salute the tax stone for that. And I show that just for all the people who think that you have to jump at the opportunity to tell the feds everything you think they want to know in order to get a plea agreement. Y'all let me know what y'all think about this video in the comments. Like, comment, subscribe. Don't forget to check out the website, crowntvnews.com. 
Also, crowntv.world is the new website, so make sure y'all check that out as well. Salute to the sponsors. You look out your window and see people enjoying a beautiful day, but you can't because you need to wait for hours at the tax office to do your taxes. Those days are over. Let Who's Your Tax Man help you. We do tax preparation, individual and business. And best of all, you don't have to leave home. With our virtual tax prep service, submit your documents to our secure and encrypted portal. We use the same level of security your bank uses for online banking. We are licensed and bonded, and you'll get the maximum refund guaranteed. Call us at one 800 951 9591 1-800-951-9591 or visit us at whosyourtaxman.com